All right. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Um, as always, I'm glad to get to join you guys for worship this morning. I'm looking forward to opening God's word with you guys together. But uh, before we do that, I just wanted to uh, briefly uh, spend just a few minutes addressing uh, the, uh, the topic at large in our world and our society and how our church is going to respond as we think about uh, wrestling with the realities of the coronavirus and, and that happening. Um, and so I, I just a few things I just want to uh, just address um, on the front end here. And one is just I want to let you know that Aaron and I, uh, as well as numerous other pastors in the city, are paying really close attention to the situation at hand and what's going on. And it's not something that we're ignoring. It's not something that we're just overlooking. It's something that we are actively, ongoingly um, taking a look at and, and, and working through and, and thinking about what appropriate next steps are going to be needed. And so uh, based on a number of factors, we decided that it would still be wise and safe for us to gather for worship this morning, and so hence you are here, and we are here, and we're glad to be here this morning. Um, but out of an abundance of caution, uh, we won't be taking celebrating communion this morning, and I'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later in, a, in the sermon and, and what, what that involves and next steps with that. Um, and it is likely that there will be other prudent changes that will be taken in the coming few weeks here. Um, and so if or when that happens, we just want you to let you know that we'll let you know about that. And so uh, look, keep an eye on your email or the church's social media pages, and you'll be able to see kind of what's going on along those lines. So, um, so that's the logistical angle about the situation. But, but I, but I want to more importantly take a few minutes just this morning to speak to you pastorally as we think about the situation in the world around us. Um, I just want to be clear that any of the changes that we would make here at River City are not changes that are going to come motivated by fear or anxiety or panic or worry, but instead are, are, motivated, are going to be motivated by desire to love and to serve our city and to see ourselves as Jesus' kingdom people sent into the city as his witnesses here. And see, the reality is, is that, that what we say and how we live, they tell a story about the God that we claim to worship. What we say and how we live, it tells a story about the God that we claim to worship. And if our conversations or our actions are characterized not, not just by prudence or by wisdom, by wise choices, but instead by fear or anxiety or panic, if that's, if that's what characterizes our, our words and our actions, then the story that we are telling our family and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers is that the God that we worship cannot be trusted that he does not meet us in the midst of chaos, that when things are fine, he's worth following, but when things are crazy, you know, you're on your own, just trust yourself. That he doesn't really offer the peace or the hope that we say that he does. You see, but I need to remind you this morning that that is not the truth about the God that we worship. That's not the truth about him at all. Psalm 46 I think just poignantly speaks to the words of, about the reminder about who our God really is. It reads this way. It says that our God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives away, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake in their surging. goes on to say the nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. But the Lord lifts his voice and the earth melts. You see, that's the reality of the God that we worship. He's not little and small. He is not taken off guard. He is not, he is not unnerved by what is happening in our, in our world. He is the great sovereign king and ruler of all things. He is not unaware. He is not uninvolved. And he is not unable to intervene. 
The passage ends this way. It says, so be still and know that I am God. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. The Lord Almighty is with us and he is our fortress. You see, those words need to be the things that characterize and inform the way that we act and speak in the coming weeks and months. You see, the story that our lives and our words tell about the God that we worship is either a true story or it is a lie. You see, the reality is our hope is, is not in that the severity of whatever this virus might be will be weak or, or, or not, very, uh, not very significant. Our hope as well is not that God will keep us all healthy in the midst of it and protect us from any kind of harm. Our hope is that Jesus is sovereign and that he is good and that he holds us in his hands in this life and in the next. So no matter what happens, we can trust him. No matter what happens, you can trust him. I just, if, if God wasn't out of control when Jesus was on the cross or in the grave, he's not out of control in this situation. Let's just be honest with each other, right? He's not out of control. And so that enables us to trust him. A verse I've been working on with my kids over the last number of weeks in the morning, Psalm 56.3, simply says this, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. That's the invitation I want to extend to you this, this week and these coming months. When fear or anxiety, when worry seems to be the thing that you are tempted to allow to control your actions and your attitudes, the conversations that you have or the life that you might lead, I want to invite you and call you to put your faith in the one who removes our fears. And so what does it look like for our words and our actions to tell that kind of a story about God, to, to tell the story about his sovereignty and the hope that we have in him? Well, one, it looks like not allowing the way that we talk about the situation to be characterized by fear and anxiety. That doesn't mean we're going to ignore it or that we uh, just never talk about it, but it does mean that when we do, we want our conversations to be characterized by a confidence and a hopefulness in God's goodness and his sovereignty, not worry and fear. Secondly, it looks like embodying that confidence with our lives. Right? It's one thing to say something, it's another to live it out, and we need God's power in order to do that. Thirdly, I think it looks like meeting others where they are at in the midst of fear and anxiety, looking for ways to love and serve them, not just telling people not to worry. And see, worry and fear are real things, and so the invitation for us as God's people is to meet people in the midst of that, so that we might offer and show them a hope that Jesus has Lastly, it looks like just taking prudent and wise precautions yourself to prevent the spread of whatever that virus might look like. Maybe the risks in your family or in your immediate situation are low, but there are many in our city where the risks associated with contracting the virus are much higher and much more significant. And Jesus, as always, calls us to put the needs and the good of others before our own, as Philippians 2 tells us, to count others as more significant than ourselves. And so the way that we speak and the way that we act, let's allow those verses and that reality to shape and inform the way that what we say and what we do. Let's allow the way that Jesus has related to us and put our needs before his own to inform the way that we relate to others, right? And I just want to encourage you with this. See, the truth of the gospel and the hope that it gives us, that's not just intended to change our lives today. That changed the lives of the early believers and Christians who heard these words from Jesus. 
And it affected the way that they lived in situations not all that dissimilar from the ones that we face right now. The historian Rodney Stark, he wrote in his book, uh, The Rise of Christianity, about how Christians responded when the great plagues went through the Greco-Roman world in the early uh, second and third centuries. He writes this, he says, most people headed for the hills, but most Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty not sparing themselves, instead only looking um, for, the, for the others. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attended to their need. They ministered to others. You see, in the way that these Christians acted in the early first centuries, it proclaimed something about Jesus that was wildly captivating to the world they lived in. See, the way that they lived, it revealed the reality of the hope that they had in Jesus. The reality of the life that they had in him and the confidence that they had in him. So the invitation for us as God's people, right, is for the hope of the gospel and the good news about who we have in Jesus to allow that to shape the way that we think and act and live in these coming weeks and months you see, the way that these Christians in the early first centuries lived in the midst of chaos, it revealed a hope that their world was desperately looking for. And the way that you and I speak and act in these coming weeks and months, it will reveal, it has the opportunity to reveal a hope that our world is desperately looking for. And so with our words and our lives, I want to implore you, let us tell the truth about God. Let us tell the truth about who he is and what he is like and the hope that he offers so that people might put their trust and their hope in him, but more than anything, so that God might be glorified in and through us, both now and for all times. So to that end, let's pray this morning, and we'll dive into our study in the book of Revelation. King Jesus, we come before you this morning, and we are grateful. We are grateful that you uh, have come to rescue us from our sin and to make us right with you. God, we are grateful that the hope that we have in you is a hope not just for, um, that just affects the world that we live in or the life that we live today, but it's a hope that sets us for an eternal security with you. And so King Jesus, as we come this morning, God, surrounded by a world full of fear and anxiety and panic, God, we pray that you might characterize us that we might be characterized by your power as a people whose hope is set on you. God, that, that might change the way that we live, that it might change the way that we act, that it might change the way that we speak. God, so that others, our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our families, that they might see and experience and encounter the good news about the gospel and how it actually changes our lives. King Jesus, help us to join you in these next weeks and months in whatever ways you would invite us and enable us to be a part of your kingdom work, God, help us to walk quickly with you into those things. God, for our good, for the good of our neighbors and our friends and our families and our coworkers, and for your great glory, we ask. God, and indeed, we come this morning as we study your word and we say that we still need you. As always, each and every week, we need you to speak to us through it and to enable us to hear and respond. God, I am so grateful for the timeliness of your word this morning that it reminds us of the hope that we have in you so that we might live lives walking with you into the open doors you set before us. Help us to be transformed by your word this morning, King Jesus. We need you. Amen. Amen. Well, 
Uh, This morning, we are going to be wrapping up our series, walking through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And if you've been with us for the last number of weeks, what you know is that the first three chapters of of the book of Revelation, uh, the the bulk of them contain uh, seven short letters that are written by Jesus to churches in the the province of Asia, in the the Roman Empire, which is today would be kind of Western Turkey or that, that area. And um, at the time that these letters were written, at the very end of the first century, these churches were all facing really significant challenges. To various degrees, they were all facing uh, things like uh, false teaching and temptation towards idolatry and immorality. They were facing spiritual temptation towards spiritual complacency or apathy. And, and most, if not all, of these churches were beginning to face uh, persecution, and which would only intensify in the coming weeks and months and years. See, in these letters that Jesus writes, they were, they were meant to comfort and to strengthen these churches. They were meant to, to encourage them and to empower them towards faithful endurance and steadfast obedience until the very end. And I need you to hear this this morning. They did just that. They did just that. But they were also messages meant to correct and to rebuke them, to call them from repentance, to call them to repentance from idolatry and immorality and complacency. You see, these were messages that these young churches all desperately needed to hear. And I hope what you've seen over the last few weeks is that they are messages that you and I need to hear and pay attention to just as much as these churches did at the time. You see, every letter, it ends with the invitation, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, the reality is that every church in every age is, is not just called but challenged to, to hear and to heed Jesus' words. And while these letters that we've read these last eight weeks, while they, while they might not have been written to us, what I hope that you have seen is that they are absolutely written for us. And the question is, as we read each of them, is will we have ears to hear? Will we listen to what Jesus has to say to his church? And even more importantly, will we choose to heed the words that we hear that Jesus has to say to us? And so with that in mind, let's read Jesus' letter, the last one in our study this week, to the church in Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, it begins this way. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut, and I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan to claim, who claim to be Jews, though they are not but are liars, I will make them to come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. To the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and never again will they leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
the ancient city of Philadelphia. It was uh, situated in a strategic place along the main route of the Roman imperial post, or the line of communication throughout the Roman Empire. It was located along the eastern side of the province of Asia, and so it served as kind of a frontier outpost, if you will, to the kind of in that day, the wild east of the day. In our, in our history, we have the wild west, right? In that day, it was kind of the wild east. And so the city of Philadelphia was situated uh, in a place in the, in, the, in the Roman Empire in which it was kind of the gateway to the east. And so it was referred to as, as the city or the gateway of the east, and it was nicknamed the city of the door. And so the city and the church that were located there, they were certainly located in a place full of tremendous opportunity. The problem was is that the city was located as well in an area that was really prone to earthquakes. And the last few letters that we studied to the letters of the church in Sardis and Laodicea and a few others that we've read, there was a, a massive earthquake that dramatically affected many of these cities. In AD 17, it was destroyed by this, uh, the city of Philadelphia was destroyed by the same city, that, that, uh, the same earthquake that had affected numerous other cities that we've studied. And while other cities were more damaged by this earthquake, Philadelphia seems to have experienced frequent aftershocks of this earthquake that extended for a long period of time. And after what had happened, the, many of the citizens, they, re, they refused to move back into the city, instead choosing to live in the outskirts and the surrounding low-lying areas of the city because there was fertile soil out there. And, and so they lived and worked as farmers outside of the city, even though it's not what they had done previously. Additionally, the city was also called Little Athens because of the many temples that it housed to the Greek gods and goddesses like Artemis and Zeus and Dionysus and Aphrodite, not to mention the imperial worship that we've talked about, the, the Roman uh, worship of the Roman emperor, the, the cult that, that pervaded the, the Roman world at the time. We also know as well that there was a Jewish contingent in this city, a synagogue that was apparently quite hostile towards Christians. In verse 9, we read that Jesus refers to them as a synagogue of Satan. Like we saw in the letter to the church in Smyrna, it appears that the church in Philadelphia had likely been expelled from this Jewish community, which would have led to increased levels of persecution um, under Roman law, because under Roman law, uh, the Jewish faith was granted an exemption from having to worship the emperor. And so it's into this kind of a context, a context characterized by uncertainty, a context characterized by insecurity, by, by chaos all around them, that Jesus Christ introduces himself to the church in Philadelphia as the one who is holy and true and who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, just a few chapters later, the, the martyrs in heaven, they address God as, as holy and true. Here, this divine term is, is, is given, it's applied to Jesus, who as God himself is holy. Holy in his character, his words, his actions, his purposes. He is uniquely set apart from everyone and everything. There is no one and nothing that can be compared to him. But he's not just holy. The passage describes him as well as one who is true, who is genuine. He's the original, not manufactured, not a copy. He is the authentic, true God. You see, there are many false gods and goddesses that were worshipped all over this, in the city of Philadelphia, but Jesus Christ was the one who could rightfully claim to be the true God. And as the true God, what he speaks and says is true. It is the accurate, right 
evaluation of all that is. But not only is Jesus holy and true, the passage tells us that he holds the key of David. In chapter 1, we saw the risen, ruling, reigning King Jesus declare that he held the keys to death and hell itself. Here as the one, we see him as the one who holds the keys of the house of David. It's a reference to Isaiah chapter 22, and we see that where we see that he also authoritatively holds the keys which open the door to the family or the kingdom of God itself. And so to the church in Philadelphia, a church full of Jewish people, Christians who had been excluded from the Jewish community by this, the synagogue of Satan, this, would have, this declaration would have come as incredibly good news. It would have been radically encouraging. It would have been a reminder of their spiritual security. You see, it was Jesus, not the Jews in their city, who had the authority to admit or exclude them from God's kingdom. And through the gospel, Jesus had opened a door to them, a door of entrance into his house, his family, his kingdom. It was a door only he could open, and it was a door that could not be shut by anyone but him. Jesus goes on in verse 9, not only to affirm his love for this church and, and their security in him, but to promise as well that he will vindicate them before the people who claim to be his, his family, who claim to be his, of his household, but whose actions reveal that they're actually not. See, as the holy and true one, Jesus sees the, he sees through the lies and the false claims of, of the people who claim to be his. He sees through the lies of the, the synagogue of Satan, their, their persecution of his people. It reveals that they are not his people at all. And Jesus says that he's going to cause these apostate Jews to do what they have expected the Gentiles would do for them, to fall down before the feet of these Christians, the ones they despised, and to acknowledge that Jesus the Messiah had loved them and included them in his kingdom. What a powerful encouragement that must have been for these believers. Jesus tells them that he has loved them. And that he promises to include them, but more than that, that he promises to vindicate them before the very people who had excluded them you see, the, the truth is that God does not always or even usually promise to vindicate his people in this life like he did for the church here in Philadelphia. But whatever we experience, whether we experience that vindication on, in this life or in the next, all those who have put their faith in Jesus can count on him, the holy and true holder of the key of David, to vindicate them in the end, to prove to them and to everyone else that they are his beloved, adopted family, that they're secure in him, that their hope is in him. And that's what exactly what the reality, this reality, it gives us confidence to live in a world as Jesus' countercultural kingdom people, to live lives that are characterized as countercultural in the world. And that's exactly what Jesus commends this church for doing. And in verse 8, he says, I know your deeds I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 10, he goes on, you have kept my command to endure patiently. See, Jesus is telling this church, I'm paying attention. I see what is happening in and through your church. I see what is going on. I see what is happening. I see your deeds. I see your faith. What we see is that he praises them because even though they had limited strength, they had kept his word and they didn't deny his name, 
The church in Philadelphia was likely not a large or extravagant church. It was likely a small church that lacked any kind of political or social or financial power or influence in the city that they were in. Yet they, that did not cause them to compromise to the world around them. Instead, they remained faithful and they patiently endured. They were true to God's word. They were unafraid to bear his name. What we see is that their faithfulness to Jesus had led him to place an open door before them. The reference in verse 8 to the open door is a clear allusion to the nickname of the city. As I told you in the beginning, it was nicknamed the, the city of the door, the gateway to the east. But it's more than just that. You see, throughout the New Testament, the imagery of the open door, it often speaks about opportunities for gospel ministry. One pastor puts it this way, between the kingdom of God and the culture of the earth, there are a door. There is a door, and through that door, people pass to meet Jesus and to receive eternal life. And through that door, God's people are sent out on mission to the world to preach the gospel and to make disciples and to plant churches. You see, what Jesus is telling this church, he says that I am opening a door for you that no one but me can shut you are not powerful you are not strong you are not mighty but i am and through your faithfulness in spite of your weakness i am going to make much of myself through you so walk through the open door that i am setting before you you see and that's exactly what this church did generation after generation after generation For another 1,200 years. Church history tells us that this church had a vision to reach a lost world. That they preached the gospel and that they made disciples. That they planted churches as far as India. And it wasn't because they were strong. It was because they chose to be faithful to the only one who truly is. Warren Wearsby, a commentator, he writes it this way. He said, It is not the size or the strength of a church that determines its ministry, but the faith in the call and the command of the Lord. For God's commandments are always his enablements. And if Jesus Christ gave them an open door, then he would see to it that they were able to walk through it. See, the reality is that God rewards faithfulness to his, his church's faithfulness to him by giving us more opportunities to be about his glory, by giving us more opportunities to make much of him. You see, and the question is, is that will we choose to be faithful and to walk through the open doors that he places in our path? See, doors that lead us to people who need to be led back to Jesus I just want to ask you this morning, what are the open doors for gospel ministry that God is putting in front of you? And I want to challenge you, do not allow the perceived weakness that you might experience about yourself to keep you from walking through those doors. You see, it is God who has opened those doors for gospel ministry for you, and it is also him who will empower you to walk through them as his kingdom people, representatives of him. And so be faithful and walk through the open doors that he is giving you for your good, but more than anything, for your great joy. I need you to hear this this morning. God has opened a door for gospel ministry here in Dubuque. I don't know if you know this or not, but River City, we are the only church in the last 10 years that has been tried to be planted here in the city that has still exists. 
And that's not because we are impressive or because that we are strong, because we are doing something amazing. It's because God has decided to open a door. And the question is, will we choose to walk through it with him? Not once, each and every day. The door he places before us. I don't know how long that door will be open. I don't know how long Jesus will, will choose to do that. For this church, it, it's, Jesus opened the door of mystery for them for another 1,200 years. Who knows how long he will do that for us. I pray that it'll be another 1,200. That would be amazing. You see, but the invitation for us is not to knock down the doors ourselves but it's to walk through the open doors that Jesus puts before us. The opportunity to lead people to him, to connect the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of heaven, and to walk through those doors with Jesus. Yes, there are obstacles, there are trials, oh, but there are opportunities for the gospel to go forth in our city, and we must be faithful to take them. That's what this church did. Will we also choose to be faithful and to walk through the doors that Jesus opens for us. And see, we have seen Jesus in this letter introduce himself and, and commend this church. But as we, move, as we move forward, as we read this passage, maybe there's something you glaringly notice that's absent from this letter. You see, what's absent is any kind of criticism for this church, any form of criticism at all. This church is faulted for nothing. And while this church is not perfect, there's nothing that Jesus has criticized them for. There's, there's nothing that he confronts them with either. Instead, what we see him is doing is gently calling them, gently reminding them that his return is imminent. And so they are to hold on to what they have, to remain faithful to him. And right before that, those words he speaks to them, and right after, he offers them some pretty incredible promises. He makes an amazing covenant with those who will choose to be faithful to him. Verse 10, he says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is to come on the whole world as a test of the inhabitants of the earth. And we don't have time this morning to do the deep dive on all the nuances of what's going on in that verse, but to understand the big picture here, you need to know that Jesus repeatedly promises that he is coming to return again. Not spiritually, not existentially, not, not in some ghost kind of form, but physically. Jesus promises to return, to rule and reign, to, to consummate the kingdom that his first coming had inaugurated. And what he promises to his disciples, and again here in Revelation, is that between those times that there will be trials and that his church will be opposed and that there will be persecution and that when the hour of his return increasingly comes at the level of persecution, that it will increase. And Jesus promises here not simply to keep this church from experiencing these trials. The phrase that is translated there, what it, really, what it, what it most accurately means is that he is faithful to keep them through these trials to keep them in the midst of them. And that he'll protect them, that he will safeguard them in the midst of the hour of trial that is coming so they could trust him. 
that the doors of the gospel ministry that he had opened to them, even if it was costly for them to walk through, even if when they got to the other side it involved persecution, even if they were hard and difficult, even if it felt like the wrong choice to walk through those doors, that they were still doors that he had opened for them and they were still doors that it was right for them to walk through. God never promised that, he, that a life lived for him and ministry done unto him will be easy, but he always promises to go with us in the midst of it. Into times and into doorways that are full of uncertainty and insecurity and obstacles, yet doorways that are full of opportunity. You see, in the uncertainty that they might face on mission with him, or the insecurity that the people of the city would have sensed every day living in and around a city plagued by earthquakes and aftershocks, it is contrasted sharply with the next promise Jesus makes them in verse 12. He says, To the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. You see, to a, to a people who lived as outsiders from their society, who, who had been pushed out from their society, who had been pushed out from the Jewish community they found themselves in, who had even been pushed outside of the very walls of their city, Jesus promises here that those who will remain faithful to him will be made immovable fixtures in his house. A house that can never be destroyed and never be removed. One in which that cannot be shaken. As one commentator writes, he says, his tender promise to those who are painfully aware of their weakness and insecurity is that they shall finally, securely belong. You see, that changes you. You see, when you know that your eternal future is safe and secure in Jesus because you belong to him, because he has secured it for you, it changes how you live differently today. I remember hearing a story about a POW who had heard over the radio that his, the, the country that, his cap, that had captured, captured, captured him, that they were losing the battle, and, and that their time in this prison camp was, was about to be over, it was about to be finished, that the, the captors were being defeated, but for the next two weeks they were still in the prisoner camp, they were still being beaten, and they were still endangered, and they were still under confinement. But he spoke about how until that time they had refused to even let themselves laugh or cry. It was just too painful to even do that. But once hope had broken in, there was a confidence in what was next. They were able to, they were able to do those things. And they lived differently. Even though their situations had not changed, the hope that they had had changed them internally. You see, that's what the promise of being a pillar here does. He enables us to live a life full of hope in the midst of trials and chaos now because you know that one day it will all be over and that you'll be rescued and safe and secure and that the hope that you have is one made by King Jesus himself. And so let the promise of the rescue and the belonging and the security fuel your ability to walk through the sometimes insecure and uncertain situations that we face in life, uh, uncertain and open doorways for gospel ministry. Let, us, let, this, let the security that we have in Jesus and the hope that we have in him, let that be the thing that shapes our lives today. 
Jesus goes on in the end of verse 12 to emphasize this sense of belonging when he promises to write on them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven and I will also write on them my new name. And again, Jesus speaks to the city and to the city he knows and the situations he knows. You see, in appreciation for the aid that Rome had lent them to reconstruct their city after that massive earthquake, Philadelphia was a city that was briefly renamed Neo-Caesarea or Caesar's new city. But here Jesus promises to write on them an altogether better name, a more confident name, a name that will never change, and the name of a greater city and a greater God. You see, Jesus offers them a reminder of the security and belonging they have in him. Although their city might be shaken and their world might be shaken, their God would never be shaken. And their hope in him could be sure and steadfast in the midst of anything. You see, in every week when we take communion, what we're reminding ourselves is about all that Jesus did to give us that kind of security. Reminding ourselves of his body and his blood, which is broken and shed for us, so that we might have the security of relationship and confidence in a hope in him. You see, in communion, it doesn't make you right with God. When we take it, it doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with God in any way. Instead, what communion is for us here at River City is a reminder for us. It's a chance for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus and all that he has done for us so that in remembering who he is and all that he has done, we might be filled with a confidence and a hope in him and a love and a gratitude for him that overflows into a life of steadfast faithfulness unto him. You see, but I need to remind you this morning, taking communion is not the only way we remember the gospel together, is it? And you know, this morning, out of a choice of abundance of caution, we've chosen to hold off on, on celebrating communion. What that does not mean is that we are holding off on celebrating and remembering the person and the work of Jesus, does it? You see, instead, as we sing, as we worship God, as we remember who he is and all that he has done for us, let us set our hope on him. Let us set our confidence on him. Let us set our attention on him this morning so we might remember who he is and all that he has done. And in remembering the truths of the gospel and remembering the security and the hope that the gospel gives us in him that we might be fueled and empowered to live lives of faithful obedience unto him. And so this morning as we worship as we sing together, as we remember the gospel together in songs, remember the person and the work of Jesus together in song this morning, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Thank him for the open door that he has made for you in the gospel so that you might have hope and right relationship with him. And ask him to empower you to walk through the open doors for gospel ministry that he is opening for you today. As well this morning, ask him that he might help you to set your eyes on the promises that he makes. Faithfully to keep you through trials, to eternally secure you in his presence, and to write on you his very name, noting your belonging to him. Ask him to help you to remember those promises, to set your eyes and your heart and your affection on them, so that in every and any situation, you might be empowered to live lives of faithful obedience unto him. And so to that end, let's pray.
King Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are grateful that you have loved us. We are grateful that you have come to rescue us in the gospel. God, we remember that that's not something we deserve or that we have earned or that we can mess up, but instead it is a door you've invited us to walk through, the door that you have opened up for us. And so we pray for those of you, us here this morning, Jesus, that have never put our faith in you and put our hope in you and put our trust in you. Jesus, would you help those who are here in that situation to choose to walk through the door of life that you have opened for them in the gospel? God, and for those of us here this morning, God, who you are placing open doors for gospel opportunity, gospel ministry opportunities in front of us, King Jesus, help us to walk through them with you. Jesus, your words to these churches were exactly what they needed to hear. They empowered your people to walk through chaotic and trying times, yet remain faithful to you, all the while advancing your kingdom and your purposes. King Jesus, would you graciously empower, enable these words to do the same for us today? God, by your spirit, would you enable us to have a confidence and a hope in you that causes us to live lives of hopefulness and confidence, live lives of faithfulness unto you, King Jesus, in the midst of every and any circumstance, God, so that our world might see the hope that you offer and so that you might be glorified. God, today and tomorrow and every day from now till eternity.